Thank you, praise team. Thank you, Tom, for your leadership uh, on a week when uh, I get to preach. Uh, it's nice to, to not also have responsibilities in leading worship, so I'm grateful for all that serve um, in music ministry and uh, faithfully help out in that way. So, uh, Well, good morning. Uh, again, it is a pleasure to, to be here with you. Uh, and to worship with you today. If you're visiting, uh, I want to extend a warm and a special welcome to you today. Uh, we count it a privilege that you would come this morning to worship with us and be in our midst and to share uh, in, in what we hope is a sense of family, what we hope is a sense of, of, of graciousness and welcome. Uh, more than anything else, we hope that you feel welcome here uh, to take things at your own pace and to experience it as as is comfortable for you, um, but we want you to know that you're welcome uh, in this place. If you're wanting to stay more closely connected to us, well, a couple of the best ways uh, are to like us on Facebook, if you're on Facebook, or to follow us on Twitter. Uh, search for Church of the Nazarene Centralia and click on the one in Washington and not the one in Illinois. Uh, that would be good. Uh, I know you guys are all Twitter users, so if you're tweeting, you know, follow us at uh, at Centralia Church, uh, and you can get little updates uh, and hopefully stay more closely connected. Uh, I, I warned you earlier, I'm not the usual preacher here at Centralia Nazarene. Uh, our lead pastor, Pastor Dave, is, is away on vacation this week, and he asked if I would bring the message this week. It's my honor and my privilege uh, to do so. Uh, I do want to take just a quick moment before we get started uh, and talk a little bit about um, our, our ministry here at the church, particularly our core group ministry, this is a big part of what we choose to do and what we hope is a regular and steady diet of spiritual growth for you uh, in our church family. Uh, this gathering here in this place of worship that happens every Sunday morning, it's critical. Uh, it's foundational uh, to our walk with Christ. Um, the gathering of the faithful to worship needs to happen on a regular basis and is, is part of our weekly nourishment. Our, our weekly cultivation of what it means to live life with Christ. Uh, we need to have moments of corporate worship when we stand together, shoulder to shoulder, with brothers and sisters in Christ, and sing songs together and declare the word of the Lord um, and the coming of Christ our King, uh, hearing the Bible read in our midst, being challenged to become more like Christ. That's an important part of our spiritual diet. The second thing we need is a, a smaller group of people with whom we can grow and get to know one another and do life with one another. And that's why we've designed our core group ministry uh, to, to, and it's as, and as, as an essential part of, of the life of our congregation. Uh, I know it's, it's not easy to make this commitment. Uh, I am a part of a, a large family in that we have seven kids, uh, ranging from various ages. I can't even keep track anymore, so I won't try. Um, but, man, I've used every excuse in the book we're busy. We've got a lot going on. It's hard to do. Uh, I don't like to open up. It's hard for me to do. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I have a need to share my feelings or it's not my thing. Maybe it's uh, excuses of before that I've used of, I don't know what it's going to be like and I'm a, what if I'm a little uncomfortable? I'm not normally this bold, but let me be bold in this moment. Whatever excuse I've used in the past, if, if, if you have an excuse that you're using, is keeping you from good things. I believe that. 
that's keeping you from good things. Uh, we have acknowledged that there may be seasons when groups don't work for some families. We understand finding a weekly time to commit to a group is difficult. It is. But taking time to grow closer to people in this church family, spending time digesting and considering the things God has spoken to you and is speaking to you and to others will only cause one thing in your life, and that is growth. And so I want to challenge you. It will only help you grow. So if you've hesitated in the past, I challenge you. This is your, this is your season. Sign up for a core group. They'll be out on the tables next, next week. It's a good thing. The final thing that we want for all people, so number one is worship, right? Worship in this place. Number two is find a group to grow with. Number three is find a way to serve, right? Find a way to serve. Maybe it's as, as a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it's with the rescue mission. Maybe it's making photocopies. Maybe it's volunteering your time. Uh, with Walk and Knock, Salvation Army, our fan. Maybe it's visiting the elderly, elderly in a nursing home. Maybe it's visiting sick kids at Pope Kids Place. What is one way that you're making an ongoing, consistent effort to serve other people in your world, in your community, in your church? One, two, and three. So you got those? So number two is core groups, and I just want to encourage you next week to take that opportunity to sign up and be one of them. So put that aside. If you brought your Bible with you today, or if you have a Kindle or a, another sort of e-reader or tablet that has these wonderful, amazing, life-giving words that we find in Scripture, if you would open it to Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 7. Jeremiah chapter 31, we're going to start in verse 7. And would those who are able please stand for the reading of the word this morning. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 7. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will Blind, expectant mothers and women in labor, a great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in the distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We say thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, I'll, I'll start with a confession this morning, um, just a, a, a little piece um, of, of vulnerability here. I have struggled a little more than usual 
uh, in trying to prepare for this morning as far as what I should say. Uh, now, to those that were hoping for this and, and frankly expecting it, I worked really hard to work in like a Star Wars theme or clip or something um, to no avail. So um, just couldn't find a way to pull it off. Now, that's not to say there aren't many tie-ins to the to spiritual life in Star Wars for all you Star Wars, Star Wars faithful out there. Um, there are. We can talk about that later this week if you, if you want to, to discuss some of those. But as I prepared for this morning, I was led back to the truth that this isn't a journey toward what I think I want to say. When I stand on this platform to divide this word and to bring words of life, um, of all the burning, itching, relevant, trendy things I could say or that I might want to say, uh, my calling is to stand before you and speak words from Scripture. I pray that today I might be faithful uh, to that task. And, and, and that being said, as much as this message is meant for you, and I pray it will speak to where you stand today and where you are today, please know that it's for me as well. Uh, of all the things that I struggle with in this walk of faith and in this journey with Christ, uh, these words from Jeremiah strike at the heart of, of one of my weaker and more fragile in my life. So please, please know today that, that I don't have this, this all figured out. And I still hear my microphone going in and out, right? Okay, so Bruce, I'm going to turn this off, and I'm going to grab that microphone because I can't deal with that. So here we go. All right. Is that working? Hopefully it'll be a little more consistent for us, so I won't be distracted, and you'll hear the words that God wants you to hear. So, uh, so we need to do a little background work here to get us caught up to speed. We, we jump into the middle of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. We're reading from one of the prophets of the Old Testament. This is uh, a little Bible trivia for you here. Jeremiah is the second largest book in, in the Bible, second only to the book of Psalms, which is the largest. Um, Jeremiah finishes out um, as, as, as a prominent place in the, in the Old Testament and the largest of the prophetic books that we have. Now, if you're going to sit down and read through the book of Jeremiah, the first 25 chapters of this book really have a distinct style difference from the rest of the book. Uh, this first section probably resembles what someone might expect from a prophetic book, uh, primarily a pronouncement of judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem for, for wandering away from God. Uh, they, the, the nation has kind of gone its own way. And the prophet's saying, eh, you might not want to do that. This is going to spell trouble in the end. We're going we're gonna to have, have problems here. So that's the first 25 chapters. Now, it's, it's really helpful to understand what, what history scholars believe the Israelites were going through during this time. So I'm going to try to wrap it up and try to, try to give you a picture of that. At that time, the Israelite people had separated into two kingdoms. Okay, there was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, the north retained the name of Israel, and the south had taken on uh, the name and was known as Judah. Okay, and during the time of Jeremiah's life, scholars believe there were three major nations that were vying, vying for control of the Near East, okay, the ancient Near East. The first was Assyria, the second was Egypt, and the third was Babylon. Okay, so we got these three schoolyard bullies <laughs> in the neighborhood of Israel and Judah, uh, and they're kind of throwing their weight around. The opening statements of the book of Jeremiah indicate uh, to us, Jeremiah began his ministry during the reign of 
of Josiah. Okay, For all intents and purposes, Josiah had inherited a kingdom that had become a political and religious vassal state of Assyria. Josiah's father and grandfather had promoted forms of worship that were native to the, to the Assyrian people and opened the doors for foreign, other foreign worship practices. And all of these pointed to different gods than Israel's Yahweh God. And after the Assyrian uh, king died, and as the Assyrian empire began to, to kind of fizzle out or fade in power, Josiah, who, by the way, for all you, all, all, most of the children have left, Josiah was appointed as king of Judah when he was eight years old. That's scary. <laughs> that's scary. Okay. If you know any eight-year-olds, I think that's a little nervous. It makes me a little nervous. Uh, we have an eight-year-old in our, almost in our family. Um, he's seven. He turns eight in four days. Okay. Just, hey, that's, a, that's a success story right there. That, was, that wasn't even written down. I remember that. Okay. Josiah began to get rid of the foreign forms of worship that had been allowed over the previous decades. Second Kings tells us the story. Do you remember the story? Josiah found the book of the law in the temple and began grieving how far his kingdom had wandered away from God. This was when he was 16, by the way. And he just said, we, 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 we have to do something. And so he began to, to reinstitute many of the laws and customs and religious practices of the Israelite people. Well, as the Assyrian, Assyrian group faded, bully number one kind of faded away, Babylon, the Babylonian people saw their chance to not only break free from their control, but to kind of strike back, right? To attack and take over Assyria. So they did. They marched against the capital, Nineveh, which was the topic of another Old Testament story, but we're not going to get into that one. Uh, they marched against the capital, Nineveh, and destroyed it and moved on to one of the last strongholds, Haran, one of the last strongholds of the Assyrian people. Well, that's when big brother number three got involved, Egypt. Now, Egypt, probably because they felt like Babylon was kind of taking a little too much control, had, had, a, had a little too much going on, they decided to head up to Haran to help out the Assyrians. They didn't want Babylon to take over too much control. Well, Israel decided to get involved as Egypt marched up through the kingdom of Judah. Josiah decided to try and stop the Egyptian forces. In the battle, not only did Judah lose its independence to Egypt because they were not able to stop the Egyptian forces, but Josiah, one of Judah's, Judah's best leader, best leaders in this time, was killed. Okay, well, after Josiah's death, the Judeans put one of their own on the throne, Jehoahaz, but Egypt didn't like that, so they said, "Nope, that's not going to work." Put his older brother on the throne and changed his name to. Jehoiakim. This is all found in this for light reading this week. If you want to look this up, this is all found in Second Kings chapters twenty-two through twenty-five. You can read through the story. Um, you're kind of getting the Cliff Notes version. If you're my age or older, or if you're younger than me, you're getting the Sparks Notes version. So, if you understand that, um, the struggle then was between Egypt and Babylon. And after about four years, Jehoiakim decided it might be better to move and be loyal to Babylon. So he kind of switched allegiances to the Babylonian king, probably a name you've heard of, King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and this was about 604 or 605 B.C. 
according to most scholars. Judah remained under Babylonian control for about two more decades. There were a couple of times of rebellion where the Judeans thought being controlled by Babylon wasn't fun anymore. (laughs) And so they resisted, but never with good results. Eventually, in one of these rebellions, in 587 B.C., the armies of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon would march on Jerusalem and destroy the city, its home, and the temple dedicated to worshiping Yahweh, and the exile to Babylon would begin. This is the setting of Jeremiah's prophecy. Did you hear the prophecy? (laughs) Did it sound like all this was going on? Let me read it for you again. Can we read it again? You don't have to stand up this time but I want to I read this to you again. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout to the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in the distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion, and they will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with bounty. That's amazing to me. In the context of what we just read about what was happening in Israel and Judah, these are the words of Jeremiah the prophet in this time. Um, there's a little section in the book of Jeremiah, chapters 30 through 33, have been referred to some commentators as, quote, the little book of consolation. So, so there's, there's definite different parts of Jeremiah as you go through. Certainly chapters 1 through 25 of Jeremiah speak of the disobedience of the Judeans. And the prophet is attempting to offer a warning and, and, and to bring some corrective back to the nation of Judah. The back half of the book mostly consists of biographical and historic narratives except for this brief interlude of amazing, radical, optimistic hope. Chapter 30 records these words in verse 3. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. The rest of the chapter goes on to chronicle the restoration of the Israelite people from all the lands to which they've been scattered among the surrounding nations. But let's look a little closer 
at the text. Can we do that? In, in verse 31, let's, let's, let's look at it. In the, in the first verse, we see four imperative statements, four things that, that are supposed to happen. What will happen in the Lord's deliverance? We hear some answers, some responses. Sing. We're going to sing for joy. We're going to shout. We're going to make your praises heard. And we're going to say, Lord, save your people. That as the people are brought from the land of the north and gathered even from the ends of the earth, there's this sense of great expectation and hope that God was going to deliver and God was going to gather these people back to their nation. And the next passage is exciting too. We miss it sometimes. I think sometimes because we're, we're so American and sometimes because we're so 21st century, it says this. Listen to this statement. It says, among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. That's in verse 8 of chapter 31. That is, that is so great. The women are going to have babies. I like babies. That's exciting news. That's, that's good. But there's something larger that that represents for the Israelite people. These groups represent the most rejected segments of the Jewish society, the most ill-fit group for this journey home. And even they get to return. The blind and the lame were disregarded, largely ignored by culture back then, would clearly need assistance for the whole journey back home. Also, sadly, in this patriarchal society, women were, were not always valued as the way they should have been. Um, but prophecy states that they were coming home too. The imagery of, being, of, of having expectant mothers coming home not only heightens the awareness of the presence of women and gives them the place that they deserve in this return, but also represents a new and an emerging generation to be raised in the land promised to and inherited or inhabited by their ancestors. There's this sense of newness, this sense of new life that was coming with with this nation as they returned to Judah. Look at the next section. It says this. The assembly would return beside streams of water along level paths where they would not stumble. The imagery here harkens back to the tree that is planted by the river of water that is nourished and strong in Psalm chapter 1. This journey is contrasted against the 40 years of wandering that happened in the desert in Exodus. Remember that journey? Were they walking beside streams of water? They had to get it from a rock. They had no faith. They lost hope upon seeing the inhabitants of the promised land. They kind of said, well, our spot's taken. (laughs) Guess we shouldn't go there. The journey of the promised land this time would be different. God would be their sustaining force and would guide them. And the, the way would be level. The Lord was surely with them and was leading them. We cover more through this passage, but let me skip down to verse 12 if you're following along. Where the people will become like a well-watered garden and sorrow no more. Both women and men, young and old alike, will dance and be glad. 
You don't have to admit it here. But does your house have dance parties? Where you live right now, does it have dance parties? It needs to. Uh, that's my personal opinion. That's not, in, that's not found in the text. Okay, uh, But it needs to. I have to recommend them. They're, they're pretty much great. And that's the picture we get of this, this celebration that causes people to get up and dance. Hope being restored. That's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. But there's a twist. There is a twist. There is some question about the chronology of Jeremiah and, and how it unfolded in, in the history that I talked about from, from being in the Syrian control to, to trying to stop the Egyptians and then being in Egyptian control and Babylonian control and eventually losing the temple. We're not sure what parts of Jeremiah was, was written at what time. But the evidence seems to suggest that this portion was written just before Jerusalem was taken by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies. If you flip to the next chapter, Jeremiah 32, the next chapter in the story, you see the final Judean king before exile. His name was Zedekiah. He had become a little weary, a little, he was a little tired of what Jeremiah had to say. Okay, 25 chapters of doom and gloom. Okay, now we don't know that they were all in, they probably weren't in chapters yet. Okay, that came later. Um, But look what he says, verse 3 of chapter 32. Why do you prophesy as you do? Verse 5, if if you you keep saying, if if you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. Zedekiah wanted him to say, we're going to win. We're going to make it. We're going to stop Babylon. We're going to stop them in their tracks. That's what the king wanted him to say. Give us a break, Jeremiah. Why don't you be a little more positive? (laughs) Why don't you prophesy that we win for once? And all of a sudden, Jeremiah's prophecy in 31 comes into crystal clear focus. What in the world is Jeremiah saying? Okay, first, there has been nothing but trouble for both of the kingdoms of Israelites for generations. Second of all, Judah has become this little pawn Right, the little pawn in the chess match between three big brothers, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians. They are literally Judah is literally playing the game where they're just trying to figure out <laughs> which big brother to align themselves with so they don't get hit, right? <laughs> so they so they can survive. Third, likely this little book of consolation, chapter thirty one, comes on the eve of of Israel's most devastating moment, the siege and capture of Jerusalem and the destruction of Yahweh's temple, an event that becomes a precursor to the tumultuous, unsettled, violent relationships that exists even today in the Near East. I propose that Jeremiah had a different kind of hope, a different kind of hope that I tend to have. He had a before hope. He had a before hope. He had a hope when hope was unpopular. He had a hope that was unusual. He had a hope that was uncalled for and untrendy. Jeremiah had a hope that wasn't pie in the sky. It wasn't all bubbly and happy and everything is peachy. It's not, that's not the kind of hope that Jeremiah had. 
It was a before hope that was earthy and leathery and strong and enduring and tough. I don't think Jeremiah had this before hope that seems to be popular today. Well, if we're just, I'm just hopeful that everything's going to work out. Just keep trusting in Yahweh. It'll all happen like it's supposed to. Everything, everything happens for a reason. <laughs> that doesn't sound like Jeremiah's hope. Jeremiah's before hope was, was in the thick of pain and suffering and was, was understanding that more pain and more suffering was going to come, and yet his connection with Yahweh God could allow for nothing else. I think Jeremiah was scared. If I was a prophet, I would be scared. This is not like number one on my jobs I hope I get someday. Even as he declared his before hope to the king and to the people, there was this twinge of fear. If you read in 32, where he's talking about how how Babylon is going to take over Jerusalem, his, do you know where he was? He was in jail. The king didn't like him, so he put him in jail. Um, and, and he's still saying this stuff, Right? I think there was this twinge of fear because saying hard stuff to people you care about, to your nation, is difficult. And I think he knew that it wouldn't be well received. I think he knew that. I think he knew that people were going to die in Babylon. He was declaring hope for a people yet unborn. He was faithful to declare for Judah the before hope message that Yahweh had given him, knowing that the very people who heard this message were also some of the people that would die in exile in a foreign land. That his message of hope was not, maybe not for the people who were hearing the message but for a collective nation that God was on their side and God would be bringing redemption. I think we need to sit for this a bit. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel entitled to an earthly fulfillment of the hope that you have? (laughs) It's a tough question. I'm going to ask it again. Do you feel entitled to the earthly fulfillment of the hope that you have? That's not a Jeremiah hope. Again, I think our modern world of instant gratification works against us here, but we are not guaranteed the fulfillment of hope. We're not promised to be safe. We're not told it will be easy. And sometimes I let myself act and believe that these things are part of walking with Christ. Where did I get that? Where did I pick that up? I don't know. I don't know where that comes from can't figure that one out but we need to recapture jeremiah's brand of before hope that works through the tough hurts and the deep sorrows that we experience the rest of our lives like the people of judah they received this message literally on the eve of the siege of the Babylonian people where their nation would be taken into exile, their identity stripped. And Jeremiah says, there's going to be a dance party. 
because he had before hope, hope that happens before. I want to leave you today with one last picture of before hope that is fitting for this week. In Matthew chapter 2, we read this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Most of the Christian calendars mark this Wednesday as the significant day of Epiphany in the church calendar, the twelfth day of Christmas. I'll spare you from singing the song. Um, But this is the day traditionally celebrating this visit from the Magi from the East who are remembered in the second chapter of Matthew. How far did they travel? We don't know. How long did their journey take? We have no idea. But they left their homes, packing some amazing gifts and armed with a crazy amount of hope. Hope that was tough, hope that was enduring, the type that Jeremiah possessed, hope that changed lives, hope that set them out on a journey across the desert that led them toward the Christ child. What journey are you on today? And what hope do you need? How would before hope change your outlook and your perspective on this day. I said earlier that uh, that this message today was probably as much for me as it, as it was for you. I love it when God does that for me. It also means it's been a tough week for me this week of truly asking myself, how do I apply this to my life? It's clearly needed. It's clearly needed. My wife um, gave me this shirt a while back. Um, and, and I was going to wear it, but it's a t-shirt, and this shirt looks a lot better, doesn't it? Um, it's a t-shirt that has printed on it, the best is yet to come. This is big, fancy letters, and, and I, <laughs> I opened it, and I was like, what? What is this? And she kind of just laughed a little bit. It's kind of a joke. Um, I struggle so much to have this enduring hope, this hope that, that allows me to to have the perspective on the life of suffering and the life of challenges that that, that we sometimes have. Um, I can really I can really focus on the negative side of things sometimes. And I hope you haven't seen that. I hope that hasn't been a part of your experience with me. But as I stand before you, I admit that's sometimes where I'm at. And maybe sometimes that's where you're at, too. I offer this word of encouragement today to say, Jeremiah had an understanding of Yahweh that said, even on the eve of the destruction of this nation, I'm going to have hope. I'm going to believe for people that will struggle to believe as they walk through some of the darkest days, days where it looks like God had forgotten them. This temple that they worshiped God in was destroyed, burnt to the ground. And they had to ask questions in their mind. Do you ever ask unpopular questions? 
You ever ask tough questions that maybe make some people feel uncomfortable? I think they were asking those questions that day. And they needed these words from Jeremiah that said, we're going to have a dance party. God's going to bring us back next to rivers of water that will sustain us and nourish us. And the the blind will be with us and the lame will be with us and there will be expectant moms and there will be new babies. And God will restore our land and we will worship once again with joy and celebration. I want that kind of before hope. Don't you? It's clear to me that these words of Jeremiah are strategically placed within Jeremiah's book. Just before this narrative, describing the king's pleading for a better prophecy, please, let's, let's make it better. He wanted the happy, quick fix. I want a before hope that is tough enough to weather the deep sorrow and the brokenness that this life is sure to bring. May it be so. Amen.